traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. From the end of the Second World War until well into this century, America believed its duty was to lead the free world. In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons that could enable him to dominate the Middle East and intimidate the civilized world. And we will not allow it. But in the last few years, nation building has gone out of fashion. America, it is time to focus on nation building here at home. At the beginning of his presidency, President Trump's position seemed clear. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. It's going to be only America first. America first. But despite that motto, under Donald Trump, America is projecting its power with renewed force, standing up to China, forcing dialogue with North Korea, deploying more troops to the Middle East, and carrying out the largest NATO exercises since the Cold War ended. You're listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, should America still police the world? My guest today spent 38 years in uniform, rising to command all NATO forces in Afghanistan. General Stanley McChrystal transformed America's special forces, led the team that found and killed the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu Musab al-Zakawi, and lobbied for President Obama's surge of troops in Afghanistan. But in 2010, he went too far, criticising the Obama administration in background to a magazine profile that cost him his position. In the last eight years, he's had plenty of time to reflect on what went right and what didn't, and he's turned that wisdom into a book, Leadership, Myth and Reality. General McChrystal, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thanks for having me. Now, you've chosen 13 figures as examples from history, and they range from 14th century Chinese Admiral Zhen He to Coco Chanel, perhaps a bit more surprisingly. Good wide range. Is there enough that you can say constitutes leadership as a continuity across such diverse characters, centuries, contexts? There's not much, actually. The biggest continuity that we were looking for is why did they emerge as leaders? In fact, what we found is leadership isn't what we think it is, and it never was. We find that okay, we look, so what isn't it? Well, it's not the great man or woman theory. We tend to think of leaders two-dimensionally, sometimes good or bad. We don't look at them as a 360-degree human character. And we also don't look at the relationship between leaders, followers, and other contextual factors in a way that really describes just how complex this process is. Because leadership is always unique for the moment. You talk about myths and you single out three, and I guess you've, you've touched on one or two as you went along there, but give me another interesting myth that we might have fallen into in our own times about leaders. Sure. I guess to hit them first would be the, the formulaic, and that is if you have the right traits or behaviors, you're a great leader. But that doesn't correlate with actual performance. We have a lot of leaders in history, like General Robert E. Lee, has every quality right, but he loses and he makes some bad decisions. 
He loses to Ulysses Grant, who doesn't have all those qualities. Then there's the attribution theory, and that's the idea that the leader's responsible for success or failure and is the linchpin of history. In reality, that's not borne out by fact either. I wrote my own memoir starting in 2010, and I studied my life, but I also now went back and did many, many interviews with people who'd been involved at things that I thought I understood my decision and produced a certain outcome. What I found was what I remembered wasn't wrong, but it was stunningly incomplete. So I would have a simplified version of cause and effect, and I would have accepted praise or blame for that. And in reality, there were all these other people who contributed, often more than I did. And so I had to come to the conclusion that I mattered, but not nearly as much as I had flattered myself that I did. And then the final one is this idea that we are hard-nosed, results-oriented people, and we want our leaders to produce a profit if they're a CEO or a victory if they're a politician or a general. In reality, we don't. We follow serial losers more time than we can count. And other people who are very successful don't establish the emotional connection so they don't get our loyalty and our following. I think one of the most interesting thing about some of your selections is, is you, you chose some negative characters and the one who obviously leapt out given your own biography in the military and the trajectory of global affairs in the last 20 years or so is Abu Masab al-Zahawi, head of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Now, he's the guy your team located and killed in 2006. Seems in some ways a counterintuitive choice, but you learnt from him. I learned a lot from him, although when we killed him, I was not unhappy about it because he was a psychopath. But what he was was a zealot. He was a person who made himself believe something with such a fervent conviction that he burned white hot. And what it did was it caused the people around him who maybe didn't share his same level of intensity to be attracted to him, to be willing to follow him to do some things that they probably would not have considered doing simply because he seemed so confident of the direction they were going, no wavering, no questioning. And so as a consequence, he was able to create al-Qaeda in Iraq from many people less intense into this lethal machine. I was part of the team that fought him for two and a half years. And I have to say, I grudgingly admired his ability to inspire, his ability to make them operate even when times were very tough. And so when we killed him, I realized that I had modified some of my leadership, hopefully not the psychotic part, on what he had taught me. That goes back, doesn't it, to the competition of, if you know, the Coriolanus play by Shakespeare and his relationship with Tullus Orphidius, that the relationship between the two enemies can be a very intense one. Absolutely. And you think about it, and I used to describe this to people, People would look at the spectrum and put al-Qaeda, hardcore terrorists on one end, and they put my counter-terrorist force on the other. And I said that's an incorrect depiction. It's much more like a circle in which the two ends are very much alike. My best commandos were much more like the best al-Qaeda leaders than they were like other people in society. And I would argue it really is just where they were born, how they were brought up, what side inspired them, because they all wanted to be part of a team. They wanted to commit themselves they were very, very dedicated people that just had a different cause. And what did you learn about your own leadership that would tell us how we would deal with any similar sort of insurgent enemy in the present or the future? I'm thinking about what did you learn from it that might help us, for instance, in the struggle against ISIS? Yeah. Um, first is you have to be incredibly empathetic. And when I say empathetic, I don't mean sympathetic. I don't mean rub people's bellies. 
To me, empathy means you're able to sit on the other side of the table and see it from the other person's perspective. You don't have to agree. You don't have to to follow it. What you've got to do is understand there are almost always two rational perspectives, actually more than that. And if you had been on their side of the table, if you'd been raised that way, you might see it exactly that way. It might be more right than our position. So that was the first. The second was the followers that I was honored to be associated with, our team. They needed something from me, but what they didn't need was command and control. They didn't need me to tell them what to do each moment. What they needed was me to create an environment in which they could operate with confidence, with support, and be held to a high standard. And where does the role of dissent come in here? Because those who don't share a military background or leaning might say, well, the role of dissent in societies has become just as important as the role of leadership and particularly when it comes to the contentious decision to go to war. But surely as a a general, you must find dissent rather difficult to deal with. Well, it can be irritating. It can be irksome if you've got a plan or you're pushing something and somebody goes, it's a bad plan or it's morally wrong or something like that. But the reality is dissent is not only healthy, it's essential. Inside an organization, particularly a hierarchical organization where you wear your rank on your uniform like the military, where you say, sir, where you salute, there's a natural inhibition to voicing dissent. So the leader has got to create an environment where you not only allow it, but you actively seek it and celebrate it, which means that when you're told the hard truth, you have to be willing to swallow your ego a little bit. It's like the free press. The only thing worse than having a free press that criticizes you is not having a free press that criticizes you. I I can't resist throwing in there that there are limits to that. And then under the Obama administration, it was felt that your comments or those of your your aides had crossed that line in the relationship. Do you regret any of that? Well, I certainly regret that it happened. I think the depiction in the magazine article was inaccurate. But that's my perspective. And I would have that perspective, wouldn't I? But either way, something comes out like that and it depicts disagreement. In that particular case, it depicts discussions that shouldn't have been had, at least around a reporter for sure. And so we put a difficult situation in front of President Obama, and it's my job not to do that. So I accept responsibility, and I bore him no ill will at the time. When I submitted my resignation, he accepted it. You've described Donald Trump as the wrong answer to the right question. That's what you mean by that. Yeah, I borrowed that from a clever friend of mine, but I think it's very true. Americans have been frustrated with the elites in society, those who lead the government and those who lead business, and they have a right to be. If you look at the growth in incomes in middle America, it's been stagnant. Why wealth has become disproportionate. If you look at political power, it's gone to elites. And then you look at some of the misadventures, Vietnam, you could argue, the invasion of Iraq and the economic crisis of 2008 were all probably preventable and certainly something that could be criticized. That said, I think someone who comes in and offers a simplistic answer to that, we are going to drain the swamp. We're going to blow up the system. We're going to do that. In this case, President Trump has played upon people's fears. He's played upon people's uh, willingness or almost desperation for something different. And he's offered something that I don't think is inherently accurate. And if we look to President Trump in the rest of the world, the impact in the rest of the world, NATO and relations with NATO, obviously at the heart of that, the president started at 
talking about tearing up NATO. In fact, NATO seems in some ways to be consolidating. We're seeing those big manoeuvres there in Norway. We have others coming down the line in Germany and across Central Europe next year. Do you still believe that the NATO that we have at the moment is fit for purpose? And would it, if Bush came to shove and the shots were fired, do its job? Well, I think it's imperfect for purpose, but it is still very appropriate and very important. I, I, I got to command NATO forces in Afghanistan and additional allies. And in reality, they came because of the relationships between the nations and the loyalty to the United States, not because they loved Afghanistan. So those linkages are critical. If we think about Article 5 of NATO, mm -hmm. it's so essential. If you were a Baltic state right now, Article 5 is just sacred to you because you need some confidence that someone would help if you're in trouble. And so I think... Are you confident that someone would help in the event that this, particularly under this presidency, that there would be a step up to uh, aid a Baltic state if it got into serious trouble? How confident... I think the degree to which we have put any uncertainty in that is very unhelpful. And I think that although we can argue that other NATO nations have not spent enough money on defense, and I think it was entirely appropriate to poke them for that because there were people who aren't doing their part. At the same time, I would not want to call in question the very idea, the rationale, the importance of the alliance because I think it's critical. John Lewis Gaddis, we interviewed on this show a little while ago, said it's not really deliverable. It's something we tell ourselves. And, and I I've also spoke to senior British military figures who have the same sort of doubt that it may not be helpful to bring it up, but it might be true that all these societies now behind defending the Baltic states, when we don't even really know what a conflict is anymore, at what point are you clear that a Russian, which is what we're talking about, action in that area would become a war? Are you clear in your own mind as a general? Well, I'm not entirely confident that everybody would immediately see that. And if we go back to the beginning of the Second World War and the invasion of Poland, there was some hand-wringing and uncertainty there. And I think that the march to war showed what happens when you, you don't have certainty. We may be back in an era where there's just enough doubt now, which makes it dangerous. You were Special Forces Commander, spent a lot of your time fighting insurgent forces, really, in the, the frontline stuff in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Are we seeing a kind of shift away from those conflicts of insurgencies of non-state actors back towards great power politics clashes and back, therefore, to the role of, of states? I think what we're seeing is back to where we're going to see both now. We had a period when the United States was disproportionately powerful and called a hyperpower at one point. And so the idea of nation-on-nation -nation warfare was impossible because nobody could possibly stand up to the United States technologically or, or girth-wise. I think that's not true anymore. I think there are states that have determined that in some fashion they can potentially contest us. But I also think smaller actors, non-state actors, even terrorist groups are leveraging technology now that has disproportionate ability to threaten. And so I think what we're now going to see is both. We're going to see the whole range of threats. Although violence is statistically down in the world, I think the potential for violence is still relatively high. And one of the places where it's not just the potential for violence, the violence has been intense and ongoing is, of course, Syria. Secretary of Defense Mattis seems to want to move more forces and assets out of the Middle East, a very sort of hands-off approach on many issues there, including Yemen as well. Is America now becoming less relevant in a military presence at all in the Middle East and areas around it? 
I think there's certainly the perception of that and there's probably some reality to that as well. And you can make a strong argument that we shouldn't spend too much national treasure in the Middle East. We've been disproportionately focused there and with some limited gains. But the reality is the Middle East is a very, very dangerous place now, maybe more unstable than it's been in quite a while, fundamentally unstable with Syria in its state, the actions of Iran, Turkey at odds with people. Saudi Arabia. Of course, some people think it's it got more unstable when America, Western powers, Britain included, got too involved militarily. Do you ever have a reality oh, check about that? Absolutely. I think the invasion of Iraq took the keystone out of the arch. And I think it was a mistake from that standpoint. I don't think it was evil in intent. I just think it wasn't thought through. But things where they are... You mean the whole idea of the intervention or do you mean the way it panned out? Both. I think so, the idea... So fundamentally, you wouldn't have done it? No. No, no, I wouldn't have done it. And I, I find it impossible to argue it was a good idea now because we do know what panned out. And so once you know what happens afterward, being able to judge whether you should have done it, if we'd known this was going to happen, would we have done it? I would argue no. I think uh, Saddam Hussein was not a good person, not a good leader. But I think he was more like rotten fruit than anything else. And I think at some point he would have fallen. I felt I should just push you a bit on the Saudi question. America, among others, but particularly so because of its size and heft, continues to sell arms to the Saudis uh, used against civilians in Yemen in, in that conflict, which seems to be going to no good end soon, despite, I think, a, a bit of extra push now from Washington. Is the Saudi relationship, and particularly that arms-selling relationship, the worm in the bud here? No, I don't think the arms selling relationship is. The thing is you can buy arms anywhere now. You don't need the United States to sell you arms. Our arms may be better, but in fact, the Chinese produce arms and will sell them freely. The Russians produce arms. So the reality is for us to make a decision not to sell arms sometimes actually lessens our leverage over time because when you sell arms, there's a training package, there's a logistics package, there's a relationship that gives you some leverage with the buyer over time. It's not just making money from it. So I think we need to be very thoughtful about when we don't sell arms to people. It's a difficult argument to accept given the use or indeed possible misuse given the, you know, it's sure. difficult to talk about sort of competence with, with weaponry, but it wouldn't appear that the Saudi use in, in Yemen has been particularly but I well think that's thought separate. through. But when you say it's separate, but aren't you in some sense responsible for it, yeah. the American government, if it sells the weapons and the military industrial complex behind it is quite happy to go and have those weapons put into theater? No, that, that's right. And there's an argument to be made there, but it only goes to a certain distance because if an ally or another country then buys the arms somewhere else and does it, and you say something, you have much less leverage over them. Now, the question is, and because these are somewhat separate, they're, they're, I admit that there's an intertwining. What we can't do is stand by something we think is wrong. If we think the Yemeni intervention is wrong, we need to say that. We need to put pressures that we have on that. Much of it behind closed doors, part of it may be public. We need to stand up and try to influence that. I think perhaps the most difficult, I shouldn't say intractable, because one way or the other over time it will have to be tracked, it is the relationship with Iran, which also underpins where the administration is on Saudi and on Yemen to a great extent. It's obviously boxes within boxes, the Iranian relationship and perception of Iran as a threat. Donald Trump has sounded more hawkish on Iran. Does he mean it? And what can he do? Well, I think he means it. And I think that he has 
looked at the nuclear part as being intertwined and the sanctions related to that intertwined with pressure on other things. The Obama administration made the decision to separate off pursuit of a nuclear weapon and yet try to contest the things that the IRGC, Coots Force, and others do around the region that are not helpful. And they tried to deal with those separately. President Trump has put them back together. It could work to put pressure on the Iranian state, but it could also have some effects that we don't want. It could mobilize and unify a population that's not particularly unified. 80 million Iranians, they're very different views inside of Iran. And so the degree to which we force them into unity and force them into nationalism can work against us over time. I don't think we should tolerate and go without fighting the things that they're doing in the region with Hamas, with uh, the Houthis inside Syria. But at the same time, I think we've got to be thoughtful about the strategies that we use so that we don't get an unintended consequence. A ground war with Iran, while we would win it, would last for a long, long time. It would be an engagement that the West, if the West more than one country was involved, would have plenty of years to think about the wisdom of it after it started. When you talk of ground war, looking at your career and also what I've covered over the years from Bosnia, bits of uh, periphery wars in the yeah. former Soviet Union, ground war to an extent seems to be going out of fashion other than in some very convoluted civil wars and the Yemeni example that we've mentioned. Is there a ground war to you that is thinkable or that troubles you as something that you think is more likely to be in prospect that we perhaps don't take as seriously as we might? I think we all, after 1989, started the end of history theory and, and we thought that these things were over. And of course, we weren't right. I just can't historically convince myself that I happen to be alive at a period when something that's been going on for millennia suddenly stops. I think the potential of a ground war is smaller with some of the uh, precision weapons we have because they'd be unsustainable. But if you think of war on the Korean Peninsula, it would be so intense, so much firepower, so many other things in a short period of time. I don't think it could grind on for years, but it could be incredibly lethal. I think in places like Ukraine, in places like Syria, maybe in other parts of Europe like the Baltics, I think a ground war is possible. And I think it we don't like the idea of it. We don't want to... You ground war with the Americans as combatants. We could be combatants. We could be combatants in it. And uh, so as soon as we think it's unthinkable, then I think we'll be unprepared for it. And so I, I would urge that it still is possible. Uh, what about Europe? I noticed that being on some maneuvers recently with British and German forces, Europeans are very worried about even talking about the prospect of war in Europe. It's almost as if we didn't talk about yeah. it, it would guarantee it wouldn't happen. Do you feel that the war in Europe is something that we need at least to have in our sights as something that could happen, the better to avoid it? Yeah, I, I do. I, I don't think it's a high likelihood. But with Vladimir Putin, I don't think it's an impossibility. And it could start very unexpectedly. It could start in the Baltics. It could start in Ukraine. And then suddenly it starts going, and what do you do? And so the reality is I think we do have to be prepared for it with the capability, but also the mindset that it's not impossible. And we've recently commemorated Remembrance Day, marking 100 years this year since the end of the First World War. When we look back across that span of time before both of our lifetimes, but still dealing in some ways with the, the geopolitics that stemmed from it, do you feel more or less confident now than you did at the beginning of your career that the international structure for maintaining world peace is secure? 
I feel a little less secure. Of course, it's not like the Cold War when there were the two and we were right on the edge of nuclear war, it seemed like at every moment. So I think it's lowered from there. But I think we're in a period now where it's rising again. There are more players who can start to mentally think, well, maybe I could fight. Maybe I could achieve some of my policy aims with that. And of course, with the rise of right-wing leaders, possibility of war goes up because traditionally, democracies don't fight each other. It takes dictatorship typically to get involved in a war. It's not a good foreign policy tool because you always get in a war for foreign policy reasons and then you get out just whenever you can because it's, it's so horrible. So I think we could be drifting in that direction and that's why I think it's so important to think about things like Remembrance Day, not in fear, but that we need to be prepared enough so that we can guarantee it doesn't happen again. Thank you very much, General McChrystal, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, what do you think? Is America better served by serving primarily its own interests? Could Article 5 be invoked again? And how realistic is the prospect of ground war in Europe? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you'd like a deeper dive on matters military and security, do have a listen to our podcast, How Is Warfare Changing? It's one I made with senior figures in the British and German military. You can find it on your podcast app by searching for The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. 